Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Sarah Chodosh. Welcome back to Weirdest Things Season 5. Yay! So excited to be back in your feed. Uh, Hope our listeners had a lovely break. We did pop in a non-zero amount. (laughs) I hope lots of you got to enjoy our live show virtually at Caveat. But yes, Weirdest Thing is back. We will be in your feed every two weeks uh, for further notice unless otherwise stated. So get hype for that. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, convalescing, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, why don't you start with your tease? I'm going to be talking about the era of science where eminent researchers investigated very seriously uh, ectoplasm. Yeah. <laughs> like the Ghostbusters. Yep. Go, right? Yep. Cool. Just like that. I just got a perfume called ectoplasm. Um, <laughs> so That's topical. Awesome. Based on what my fact is truly about, I worry what that smell would be. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, also, listeners, in case uh, you did not guess, given the date of this episode's publication and the already spooky vibe of the facts, this is a Halloween themed episode. We're recording this early in October, but for me, it's been Halloween since September 1st. So <laughs> thrilled, thrilled to keep that going. Uh, Claire, what's your tease? 
Yes. So um, I have a variety of candy facts to share, but I'm going to share my favorite one as my tease, which is um, that cotton candy was invented by a dentist. That's a, a traitor. A traitor to his kind. <laughs> no, they. That's. I'm saying it's a conspiracy because, like, they want us to need exactly, dentists. Exactly. Exactly, oh, Rachel. God. Is that why they that, did it? Okay, you're well, ruining we, your fact. We'll though. get into it. So, <laughs> but wow. Okay. So my tease is that you might be surprised what kind of people bound books in human skin. Not normal people? (laughs) (laughs) Debatable. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Where do we want to begin? I want to know about the cotton candy conspiracy. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um, this started off as just being like five weird candy facts. Um, And it turned into this like rabbit hole I went on yesterday about cotton candy so that's going to take up a lot of our time and then I do have four other (laughs) candy facts for us so don't worry I'm not lying there are five (laughs) candy facts of different varieties but I spend a good amount of time on cotton candy I'm sorry I also hate cotton candy so (laughs) just like I really have yeah I like cotton candy but I wouldn't I mean I'm into like a cone of cotton candy, like fresh out of the little sugar spinner. So it's like warm and it's really about the like sensory experience and caveat. I have to be able to wash my hands immediately afterward because otherwise it's sticky and gross. But it's like I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, it's it's time to eat five pounds of cotton candy. And there are many candies I do feel that way about. I just don't understand who can eat the whole thing. They always give you like an enormous cloud of it. And I don't, I want like two (laughs) bites. Okay, but see, I feel the exact opposite as Rachel and Sarah. Like, I think there is no sensory experience. Like, it melts immediately in your mouth and it's gone. I'm like, what the heck just happened? Claire. I don't like it. (laughs) The experience does not exist. Okay, whatever. So... uh, Going back to dentists and cotton candy, um, I'm pretty sure that if you asked any modern dentist today, they would tell you that cotton candy is not good for your teeth. So it might come <laughs> I as... I don't know what you have, you have you checked <laughs> Tell that me more. <laughs> With dentists? 10 out of 10 dentists don't recommend cotton candy. Um, okay, I made that up. That's not true. <laughs> don't fact check me. <laughs> Um, these are lies. Okay, so <laughs> cotton candy was invented by a dentist, and I'm going to now tell you about this weird dentist guy from the 1860s. So William James Morrison, a nice classic name there, <clears throat> was born in 1860 and was apparently this very well-to-do guy living in Nashville, Tennessee. So according to a July 2005 journal article in uh, the History of Dentistry, which note, <laughs> have to subscribe to this <laughs> journal, he uh, was not just a noted dentist, but he was also a lawyer, author, and leader in civic and political affairs. And he was also noted to be quote-unquote quote unquote, personally associated with President Woodrow Wilson. 
So <laughs> I don't know what personally associated means, like friends, friends on Facebook, whatever the equivalent was back <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it's like the equivalent of being Facebook friends personally associated is like you're not really promising much about how well you know the about president. the quality of that but Woodrow relationship Wilson, Wilson kind of sucked a lot so like maybe it's it's for the best for the for the best in our judgment of this guy's character that maybe they were he only- was trying to distance himself and later he was like oh, we were really only associated agree agree <laughs> Anyways, so in 1897, he's living in Nashville, and he has this friend, fellow Nashvillian. I don't, I don't know what that feels right. That Nashville right. call themselves, uh, John Wharton, and they conceived and patented an electric candy machine to produce what they called fairy floss. So quite the dentist-inspired name there. (laughs) Uh, So their device worked fairly similarly to the ones that produce modern cotton candy today. So there was like a heater at the top and that, okay, I'm telling you all this because I really didn't know how cotton candy worked until yesterday. So this is very exciting (laughs) for me. So there's a heater at the top that melts the sugar into this like syrupy substance while simultaneously whipping it at super high speed until it forms this like fluffy cloud-like substance, uh, a solid Mm -hmm. essentially, and then it cools super quickly. So, so rapidly, in fact, that the sugar can't reform itself back to its like functional state. So it's just like in like chaos when you eat it. And uh, (laughs) so I love... I love that description. Yes. The, cha- the that candy, the fact that cotton candy is chaotic, like fundamentally, is kind of beautiful. It just like doesn't know what's going on, so it just like melts in your mouth and like is dead to you and the world. Um, so a 2016 Nat Geo article equates it to essentially eating a sugar form of glass, because that's like also a similarly way that you that glass is formed. So with their device ready, Morrison and Wharton brought the newly minted candy machine to where everyone who's worth knowing brings their inventions, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition of 1904, otherwise known as the St. Louis World's Fair. I love World's Fairs. I wish I could have been alive back then and also in 1876 when they had like the world's first first fair in Philadelphia. So I could have tried a banana for the first time <laughs> from a fork. Yeah, I just feel like bananas would have tasted better if you had them for the first time at the World's exactly, Fair like in Philadelphia. In, like, and you paid a ton of money for it and ate it like, with <laughs> right. a fork. So yes, it was a huge success and they made this like giant profit. And then all of a sudden, like this fairy floss becomes like a popular food to eat. So time goes on though and A lot of people found Morrison's and Wharton's candy making machine to be kind of like unwieldy and it would make these super loud noises and shake and fall apart. So (laughs) finally, as chaotic (laughs) as the fairy floss inside. Exactly. So finally, a food company, Gold Metal Products, redesigns the machine and devised it such that the uh, cotton candy could roll onto a piece of paper and come out like a cone. Now, somehow between this like unwieldy, chaotic device and this perfectly designed one from Gold Metal, it changes from fairy, the name of the product changes from fairy floss to cotton candy. And I truly just could not 
figure out who did this. There were like some claims that some other dentist renamed it cotton candy, but I was like, that can't be. I couldn't verify it. And I was like, two dentists cannot be involved with <laughs> cotton candy. But if anyone knows <laughs> the answer out there, I'm dying to know. Who Wait, came up that's with interesting though, because name. it's still called fairy floss in some parts of the world. Is it really? Yeah, I think the UK, like fairy floss, candy floss. I think fairy floss is a much better name. It makes me want to eat it more than cotton candy. Like who wants to eat a big wad of cotton? But fairy floss is magical. Exactly. It's like (laughs) the opposite of actually flossing. Putting sugar in between your... (laughs) (laughs) I feel like eating eating popcorn is the opposite. That's true. That's true. true. Just directly depositing things in between your teeth. (laughs) I didn't say it was bad for you. I said it was the opposite of flossing. (laughs) So true. Um, So... Moral of the story is, if you want to succeed, bring it to the World's Fair, because that is where everything was happening back then. Now, I do want to note, and this is something that the 2016 Nat Geo article I mentioned earlier, they cite a book uh, called Sweets, A History of Candy, which I now want to read by Tim Richardson, and essentially go into this long description of the fact that even uh fairy floss was not totally invented by these dentists so um this kind of like sugary substance dates all the way back to the 15th century when italian chefs used to create sculptures from fluffy sugar which had been melted down and then drawn with a fork and draped over a wooden broom handle I've seen this on, um, well, in several places, but including Great British Bake Off. It's what they do um, for the decor for the Tower of Little Balls. They're not green, you know, the Tower of Little Balls. Like like on lemon, like meringue. The little shoe. Like when you're. The little shoe balls. Yeah, they're just like little balls of puff pastry, like literally like cream puffs, but I think often without cream inside them. And you make it in a tower. And it's very hard to make because you have to make them go up in a tower. And then you decorate it with this, like, spun sugar. Oh, my God. Um, it's like the le- – I just – And I've seen shows where people try to make this who are not, like, super professional. And that is where it all literally falls apart because it's really hard to get that perfect um, – that perfect sugar consistency to to make this kind of, like, web. So people end up with, like – caramel or like literal shards oh my gosh. of like a giant heart, you know uh very difficult to get that sort of like fiberglass texture that makes it so yeah, delicious sugar work in general i think is like super hard yeah well it's as hard as glass work really but you do get to eat it so that's exciting so it's much better it's chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I would totally fail at British Bake Off. I would fail at any like baking competition. I can't even make like the little like meringues on lemon meringue pie um, come up. I mean, I, just, I think like, that's a hard thing them. to make. Is it? I don't know. Everyone else makes it look so easy. Um, and I just destroy How many the people pies. do you know who are making? My family more? loves lemon meringue pie. They're just like obsessed <laughs> really? with it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I do love it. But like, wow, it's a very unusual pie to make because I think what Rachel said is true. Like most people struggle with meringue. Yeah. It's Your so family, hard. I think, is an abnormality, Claire. Maybe. Yeah. It's it's like it's like the like prime Thanksgiving day pie. <laughs> it's like lemon meringue pie. I don't know. For our family, at least. Wow. You guys have fancy taste. 
Yes. Okay. So <laughs> that is the story of um, cotton candy. And I was really hoping that it would make me crave cotton candy or like it more <laughs> or like have respect for it. But none of that <laughs> happened. <laughs> Not even respect. Not even respect. Just pure. Well, chaos. what about your other candy yes, facts? Thank Do you, you respect yes. any of those All candies? All right. So, <laughs> <clears throat> um, Yes. So the second one is uh, if you're anything like me, if you have Halloween candy at home, like if it's like, I don't know, like Reese's, I would eat like the entire bag. Um, So that's totally fine because as I reported in a previous story on popsci.com, it really doesn't kill you. Uh, In order to die from eating too much chocolate, you would need to eat 7,084 Hershey Kisses. I I love, though, like, don't don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) Hershey Kisses suck. But any. Oh, actually. Why is it? Oh, my gosh. I mean, they don't suck. They're fine. It's just like I wouldn't pick them over other things. How can you? I love them in the cookies. How can you love the Hershey Kiss cookies? Sorry. Are like some of my favorite cookies. Um, I'm sorry because I have I'm quite sorry. simple tastes, Sarah, and uh, <laughs> I don't need any of that 98% dark chocolate cake. <laughs> but can we also can we talk about how the um, the specially shaped uh, Reese's just taste infinitely better? than regular Reese's oh my God. any shape. Yes, because they have. I do think they have gluten in them, though. They do. I was just about to say. I I like. I don't understand. Like, what tastes different about them? Because I literally can't taste them. I think it's just the chocolate to peanut butter ratio. That's what I was going to say. There's far more peanut butter. And and the peanut butter. And and they put so much sugar in the peanut Mm -hmm. butter. Oh, (laughs) see, I, okay, I like the the King Reese's or whatever that are, like, extra tall or whatever. And then I refrigerate them. So the chocolate's, like, kind of crunchy. Also really good. good. You're getting the same thing. I promise. Okay. All right. That makes me feel better. I did last year around Christmas. I bought I bought them because I thought it was so hilarious that they tried to pull this off. They had like a bag of mystery shaped ones that were clearly just like rejects or (laughs) it wasn't clear to me whether the machine had messed up and the machine must mess up, you know, uh, what amounts to a huge number given how many they produce. But I also thought maybe someone designed a shape that then once it got off the production line, they were like, oh no, (laughs) like that doesn't look like an ornament that looks like a turd. (laughs) So it was just literally like Christmas mystery shapes and they were all just blobs. But I was like... This is great. They, I love this. They still. This is like like if you go to like the Jelly Belly factory near Sacramento, they have that you can buy these like giant things of like the rejects, and they call them belly flops. And so I good. love that. There's I love that. There's a theory that like um like all the mystery flavor candies are generally like that. I guess in between batches of candy, you get like a mix of two flavors, and it's not either. And so that's not really a flavor. It's a mystery flavor because it's just like a combination. I think with dum-dums, that is true. Oh, And then other brands, some of them are, there is a genuine A genuine flavor. flavor. But also maybe it's a genuine flavor that they use to, to like palate cleanse the machines. Totally. Okay, so fact number three. Um... Most of you might know this, but I didn't know this, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, 
According to the Tootsie Roll website, there have actually been at least three detailed scientific studies that have attempted to determine the number of licks required to reach the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop. Of course there have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) How many licks is it? Okay. That's a good good question. Okay, so they all, (laughs) most of them came to like different conclusions, which makes me think that their like scientific methods are not that good. But um, the first one was from a group of engineering students at Purdue University, and they reported that their licking machine, which was modeled, quote unquote, modeled after the human tongue, which makes sense, (laughs) um, took an average of 364 licks to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. Okay. And then the University of Michigan also uh, did a study, a group of chemical engineering doctorate students, so not undergrads. Um, they got 411 licks. And okay. then. Real licks or tongue imitation licks? <laughs> real licks? That's a good question. I, um, I mean, I feel oh, like maybe I see. the problem is the tongue machine. Oh. No, no, no. University of Michigan was also a customized licking machine as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. These are all, Who none of these are. Makes a custom so that they could like machine. meter the licks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the last one is Bellarmine University in Louisville. They uh, completed like an independent study uh, with 130 participants who recorded their licks, and th- that research is still um, ongoing. So <laughs> <laughs> they 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 continue licking to this day. Exactly. I love that. Wow, Tootsie.com really needs to update, and if they have indeed finished their <laughs> ongoing studies, okay. Uh, Number four, Snickers was created in 1930 by a man named Frank Mars, of course, and he decided to name the bar after his horse, which, okay, interesting and funny, but then, but like maybe not a great fact, but what adds to it is that uh, the lollipop, whoever invented the lollipop, also uh, named it after his favorite racehorse named Lollipop. Wow. Sorry, wait, what? Yeah, so these are two different... (laughs) horses for two different candies one snickers the other the lollipop um apparently wow there's a lot of unexpected connections in these candy facts (laughs) right uh and uh, that was the last one oh my gosh i only had four i'm sorry i have a candy fact i can fill in (laughs) oh please Uh, do go for it did you guys know that um chloroform used to be a key ingredient in certain like flavorings i think pineapple don't quote me on that i'm gonna fact check it but like chloroform apparently has in very small quantities like kind of a fruity taste and so and so it used to be a key a key flavoring element in old time candy that's not halloween that's terrible (laughs) yeah much scarier than people who think there are like razor blades in candy is actual chloroform yeah literally Right. Well, the new thing is to be like, there are so many um, weed candies with THC that are made to look like the real thing. And I'm like, no one is giving your kid $40 weed Sour Patch Kids yeah. as a joke. Who it's would, too expensive. Yeah, who would give away their <laughs> weed candy? <laughs> Not I. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This season of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is recorded with the Sure MV7 podcast kit. It's Sure's first hybrid XLR USB microphone, and it's perfect for just about anyone. Whether you're an entry-level podcaster or an experienced creator, the intuitive design makes it super user-friendly and simple to set up and control. The MV7 Podcast Kit also includes a Manfrotto Pixie Mini tripod, so it has everything you need to start recording straight away. That is super helpful for first-time creators who are buying their first mic setup. Best of all, the Shure MV7 focuses on what matters most, your voice. That means you'll get clear and rich audio no matter where you're recording. Check it out for yourself at www.sure.com slash popsci. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com slash P-O-P-S-C-I. Okay, we're back. And um, I'm going to talk about um, books bound in skin and the surprising owners thereof. Yay. Um yeah, it's a little it's a little dark, but it is spooky. So um, here we go. So for most of us, I would say, um, and this came up again and again in different articles I was reading about this subject, the idea of like everyday objects being made out of human skin is like something we associate with horror movies, maybe, um, or with like historical monsters like the Nazis. Um, there was a book in 2010 by uh, Mark Jacobson, a nonfiction book where he chronicled an investigation into um, a lampshade that someone had bought at a rummage sale in New Orleans that was supposedly, according to the seller, crafted from um, the skin of Jews murdered at concentration camps during World War II. And this is kind of a recurring myth, uh, a lot of like anecdotal evidence from the aftermath of the Holocaust. Um, the lampshade was in fact made of human skin based on lab analysis, but there was no way of knowing for sure, uh, where or when it came from. Um, I share that it would obviously awful fact because for most of us, I think that's like the kind of context that we feel like these objects exist in, um, you know, almost too horrific to speak of and like made and owned by the worst kinds of humans who have ever lived. But... Uh, While I'm not about to defend the act of binding a book in human skin, 
Um, and in fact, I will dunk on it in a little bit. Uh, recent research shows that there was a time when doing this was like considered really normal in like pretty mainstream society. I am about to roast Victorian era physicians yet again. Yes. <laughs> just going to say, well, you, you mean our regularly <laughs> scheduled roasting of the Victorian yes, exactly. era ideas? Yes, exactly. Uh, once a day, at least. I have to start by saying that everything I'm about to share comes courtesy of um, the Anthropodermic Book Project. Uh, Anthropodermic Bibliopegy is uh, the binding of books in human skin. Uh, and the Anthropodermic Book Project started up a few years ago, um, a group of researchers wanting to investigate supposed instances of this practice. Um, because as you might imagine, it's the kind of thing where like, there are a lot of sort of urban legends around it. There are a lot of schools around the world or libraries where it's like, yeah, that's totally bound in human skin. Um, so they wanted to suss out how much this had actually happened and in what circumstances. And uh, so far, the team has identified 50 supposed skin books and they have tested 31 of them using uh, peptide mass fingerprinting, which is a technique that analyzes the amino acids in the collagen of a skin sample. Um, and those proteins can uh, reveal which animal it came from. It's not so exact <laughs> that you could tell the difference between uh, like a human and another great ape. So it is possible that all of the human bound books are gorilla bound books. But um, seems like a lot of work to go through. Honestly, if it comes up as great ape and someone said it was a human bound book, the assumption is it's human. But it is exact enough that, you know, it's not like another mammal. So 13 of those 31 books have turned out to be made from some non-human animal leather like pig or sheep. Uh, but 18 of them have been confirmed as human, which Gosh. is pretty creepy. <laughs> um. And those weren't like a baker's dozen of books found in the homes of serial killers or war criminals with bookbinding hobbies. They were mostly medical texts that were bound by physicians during the 19th century. A lot of this information comes from excerpts from a book called Dark Archives by Megan Rosenblum, who's a UCLA librarian and a member of the group I just mentioned. Um, I should say I bought this book as soon as it came out. I have yet to read it from cover to cover. <laughs> I bought it knowing I was not going to have time to read it for months because I was just like, I need to support the concept of someone writing a book about books bound in human skin. That sounds <laughs> Wait, like I, the whole, I love that for the her. whole book is about that. Yeah. Wow. What's the yeah. name of it again? It's called Dark Archives. It sounds like it should be Good in like Lord. the restricted section in Harry Potter. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. That is the vibe for sure. Um, and so this is based on my like perusal of a few parts of the book and some excerpts published online. But um, I definitely recommend that listeners uh, get a copy themselves or go to a library and read one there. So... One of the stories uh, that Rosenblum follows is the binding of three books using the skin of a 28-year-old Irish widow named Mary Lynch. Uh, she was admitted to Philadelphia General Hospital's massive and unkempt ward for the poor in 1868 with tuberculosis. And at some point during her stay there uh, or before, she also contracted uh, parasitic worms. 
And when she died in 1869, a young doctor named John Stockton Hugh did her autopsy. And he published a paper on her case um, as he estimated that her body contained like eight million parasites, something absolutely bonkers like that. Um, And he thought it presented the first known case of trichinosis in Philadelphia, which is a parasitic worm. So for reasons unknown, he decided she was someone worth binding a book in. Uh, He removed the skin of her thighs and preserved it by putting it in a bedpan full of urine. Unfortunately, uh, urine is how we often tan leather goods. Um, Still? And he kept it. Well, at the time it was. (laughs) I don't think (laughs) there are probably some some like hipster uh, tanners still using urine. But I think now we can um, we know what it is in the urine, presumably, that makes it work. And we can not use pee. So, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, etc. So he then kept the skin for safekeeping uh, while Mary Lynch was buried in an anonymous pauper's grave. Um, Now, you may be wondering how we know who Mary Lynch was. And the identities of most people who ended up as bookbindings throughout history um, have been lost to time. But when Hugh had three books on the subject of women's health and reproduction bound in Mary Lynch's skin, which he didn't do for some decades after the fact, um, he noted her name, or at least her first name and last initial, in his inscriptions. Uh, So Beth Lander, who's a librarian at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which is where these books ended up, um, Philadelphians will know the uh, Motor Museum, which is a place you can see all sorts of medical horrors uh, like these books. <laughs> and she was able to cross-reference that inscription with hospital records to figure out the uh, unwitting donor's identity, which I really love because um, kind of the the main, the ickiest thing about this practice is not that the leather is human skin necessarily because like to be frank we are all meat our skin is potential leather i mean i don't think it's what i want to be done with my body after death but like as a material it's not inherently gross but the idea of a rich physician arbitrarily and without the consent of the patient you know using her as uh, a material is obviously Uh, very upsetting for reasons I hope I don't have to explain to our listeners. And um, I'm very, I find it very satisfying that this uh, researcher was able to um, unearth her story in, in some small way so that when people are looking at these objects, that they have the historical context um, and that this woman actually, her memory now is uh, living on along with these objects um, in a way that was not actually true. Uh, in many decades of her time as a bookbinding. So one thing that's interesting is that it seems like physicians generally had books that they found like particularly worthy of admiration um, bound in human skin. I mean, at the time, uh, Rosenblum points out in her book, it was also just like a status thing for people who were physicians to have large libraries and to like have rare books, especially rare medical books. And so it seems like the binding uh, with skin, often from their patients, was like it imbued more of like 
a sense of soul into the book or something to that effect or like added gravitas from a medical perspective. Um, But one book in this guy Hughes collection is really curious. It's basically a giant dictionary of the books found in a particular library at the time it was printed. Um, So it's like a phone book. And he white pages, yellow pages. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. And he took the trouble to find it in human skin. Um, And there's this great passage in the book where uh, a librarian she's talking to is like, this book is such a pain in the butt. Like, it's the least interesting book in our collection. But everyone always wants to see it because it's bound in human skin. But like, it's like he just picked a book at random off his shelf and was like, why not? And in looking at it, Rosenblum noticed that it it lacked a lot of the binding skill and artistry of the other books in his collection. So she suspects that he bound it himself, oh. like as a hobby. Like that I knew he was where that like was going. <laughs> right. So he was like, let me give this a try. Which, yeah, there is something worse about that somehow. Yeah. That's way um, worse than like like it's creepy to feel like I will bind this important book in human skin to be to make it more important but it's way worse to be like i'm just gonna practice yeah just exactly. see on this unimportant book right it's it it really boils down how much he just saw like the remains of other living people as like a crafting material that he was like give it a shot so unfortunately, there's no like feel good resolution to this. Well, there are some books about criminals bound in their own skin, which like is still gross to me from like a human rights perspective. But um, at least I like understand what they were going for with that. Like I understand the intended mood <laughs> of that object in terms of like creating a spooky, cursed tome. Um But most human bookbindings seem to just come from impoverished patients whose doctors were like, I can reuse this, Um, which really just uh, speaks a lot to how physicians saw their patients um, during this time. And we get into that in a few other episodes of Weirdest Thing. Um, I mean, the Brown Dog Riots, which was about whose corpse might be used for vivisection without their consent. Um, It was much more likely to happen if you were poor. um, And that made me think of this. But there is at least one instance, uh, supposedly, of someone willingly giving their skin for a book. So Camille Flammarion, who was a French astronomer and popular author in the 19th century, was widely reported to have been sent the skin of a deceased female admirer who wanted his latest work to be bound in it. Um, According to a 1946 paper on the subject, at least, uh, Flammarion claimed that the myths that rose up around the story, which, um, you know, there was a widely reported story that the donor was this like beautiful young countess who was in love with him and was like, as my last act, I must know that you will take my skin. And he was like, that's totally made up. The press made that up. But he did maintain that the skin was human and had come from a willing fan, uh, which is fascinating. Um, but, but wait, but okay, but the upshot is the same. A fan sent her own skin after death that was yes. like in her will allegedly yeah yes. wow. i feel like that the still makes you a big fan, fan. like yes <laughs> yes like, 
I don't really know what's disputed about the story then. It and also what does it say about him that he wasn't like no thank you right <laughs> yeah. I'd prefer wow. not but yeah uh, you know like I said at the time in the 19th century this was just like a thing people did um, and they seem to think you know it's it's like a nice it immortalizes the person it like it lends a, a like level of spiritual devotion to the book but like. That only works if everybody is willingly giving up their skin for the books they're getting put on, which um, seems to have almost never been the case. Uh, I will say, just to wrap up, um, that one thing that Rosenblum and her her colleagues really hammer home is that what their investigations have taught them is that books bound in human skin can look like anything. They can have like a suede texture, a waxy texture. They can be in any color because, again, like... Sorry to remind you, but, like, leather is just skin from other animals. Like, you can do any of the same treatments and change the look of it in the same way. So her point is that, like, yes, a lot of the uh, purported human skin books are fake, but also um, you would not be able to tell if uh, an old leather book you were holding was uh, human skin. It's not like in Evil Dead where it's like, or like Hocus Pocus, where it is like very um, overtly skin. So um, that is just to say that, you know, whenever you're holding um, an old book, especially if you have an occasion to hold um, some books from the 19th century, um which I'm realizing I have done because I did go to the New York Academy of Medicine library for my book research. And I did hold some things that were like literally falling apart because they were so old. And I was like, I shouldn't be allowed to touch this. And now I wonder if any of them were found in human skin, but I will just be wondering for the rest of my life as will um, many of our listeners, I hope. And I leave you with that spooky, creepy thought. And I'm so sorry. I hope. I hope that they continue to wonder. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, I hope you never get get a confirmed human skin book because I feel like that's, that's much true. worse. That's worse. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, understandably, there's a lot of debate about like what do you do if you realize that your institution is in possession of such a thing because most of them are uh, travesties. You know, they are abominations. Again, not because the material is inherently wrong, but because it was like a horrible breach of consent um, and like a disrespect of human bodily autonomy for them to be made. Um, You know, Rosenblum uh, suggests that like to just get rid of these objects or hide them would be worse to pretend that this didn't happen and that instead we should uh, learn something from them. So let's try to learn something from them. Uh, a lot of Victorian era doctors were real uh, real jerks. That's what I've learned. You already knew that. <laughs> Don't I lie. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. And um, Sarah, tell me about ectoplasm. I want to know everything. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so the ectoplasm story begins in the 1920s with a French woman named Eva C. I'm not going to butcher her last name because she was French and I don't speak French. Uh, she was the first materialization medium which means oh, that great that she materialized things mainly ectoplasm and uh what is ectoplasm you might ask i did uh <laughs> spiritualists <laughs> might tell you that it is like a a manifestation of a spirit in the physical world or like of of spiritual energy generally and then like anyone else would tell you it's just mostly like cheesecloth or gauze, perhaps, like some kind of nice chiffon, maybe, uh, with a little shimmer. Uh, and it, it definitely it definitely looks like gauze, just to be very clear. Like, I'm going to ruin the mystery here. Ectoplasm, you're picturing your head like some kind of goopy thing, or maybe it's green, or it glows or something. And um, like IRL ectoplasm, quote unquote unquote ectoplasm, it just it definitely just looks like a sheet of gauze. Cool, um, got it. But uh, but but that is important to know because uh, despite the fact that it did look like cheesecloth, uh, Eva C convinced a lot of eminent scientists that this was otherworldly, that it was a spiritual, a, a physical manifestation of a spirit. And uh, there's a quote from Popular Science Magazine from September 1921 about how ectoplasm, quote, can assume the shape of a hand or a face or even a whole figure and how it is curiously like human skin in cellular structure. And I'm not sure what ectoplasm they were looking at exactly. <laughs> maybe it was cotton candy. <laughs> uh, yeah, or maybe they had some faulty microscopes. I'm not really clear. Um, but uh, yeah, Eva, Eva was extremely good at convincing people that she produced ectoplasm and um my best guess for how she did it because it doesn't it just doesn't look spooky at all uh is that she was just maybe giving sort of a very sexy show to a lot of like sexually frustrated early 20th century men and they were just like maybe too busy looking at her naked body to notice what's going on because her whole show was like like seductive but she was like produce i don't know i don't know why producing ectoplasm would have been sexy but she was naked during <laughs> a lot was of a confusing time <laughs> for a lot of people yeah uh but she was naked during a lot of her seances um and you know i don't she was reasonably attractive i guess and so i maybe that was i don't know they seem to have been too distracted to really see what was going on um but she was really just the first ectoplasm producer um not all of them were that successful but there were some of note such as marjorie crandon marjorie was married to an obstetrical surgeon 
And she was so convincing that she was the only medium who was picked to perform her seance in front of a committee of experts from Scientific American, which I guess at that time must have been run by like scientists and not by journalists. Right. Um, Yeah. And they had put out a $5,000 prize to anyone who could, I guess, just convince them that ectoplasm was a real thing from the spirit world. And Marjorie could produce ectoplasm out of a number of orifices. Uh, <laughs> any number. <laughs> I truly think any number. There's a, there's a, there's apparently photos of it coming out of her nose, uh, perhaps her ear, like, oh. <laughs> like draped on her ear and neck. Um, but in general, it did come from her vagina, which makes sense if you remember the episode where i believe rachel talked about mary toft producing mm-hmm. was it a live show yes uh it was it was rabbits um yeah that was that was a live show a halloween live show in fact uh, yes so uh seasonally appropriate but yeah she um appeared to give birth to a series of animal parts not whole animals, um, just like bits and bobs, really. Bits and bobs. Um, just bits and, and bits and pieces. <laughs> and ultimately, it turned out that she'd just been shoving stuff up there and then making a big show of being in labor. And um, a bunch of men were like, there's no other explanation. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I, I guess Marjorie's grift was a little more complex in that she wasn't claiming they were coming she wasn't giving birth to ectoplasm she was simply hiding the ectoplasm in there and then bringing it out during the seance right because it's you know it's i don't i've never been to a seance but i gathered that they're dark they're dimly lit uh the spirits don't like light Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah uh literal and figurative um so yeah, she would she would hide the ectoplasm um, in her vagina, and it's important to note that this ectoplasm was not gauze; it was possibly bits of sheep lungs. What? Uh, like just I did sort not of bits, see that one. Just sort so of animal funny. bits. This is more similar to Mary right? Toth than I expected. Yeah. So it was just like the spirit world is spitting viscera at you. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, to be fair, is it's more. It's closer to what I would imagine ectoplasm looking sure. like than gauze. It's sort of right. slimy, you know? It's, yeah. No, I think the spirit world throwing viscera at you <laughs> makes more sense than the spirit world throwing gauze at you. I'm not sure I can explain why. I guess because gauze is a, is a man-made product. <laughs> like yeah. a, a woven object doesn't really seem like something um, a ghost is going to uh produce but like i i could believe they'd have some like guts yeah to spew at me i agree if such a thing were to occur yeah (laughs) so uh you know i don't i don't know whether that was like the the secret to marjorie's success um but she she did seem to be able to produce like a a number of objects from between her legs not vaginal tripe (laughs) yeah um to the point that one expert uh wondered whether maybe marjorie's husband who was uh, remember an obstetrical surgeon had uh somehow operated on her to enlarge what he called (laughs) quote marjorie's most convenient storage warehouse (laughs) my gosh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a sentence that could only have been written by a man um 
I just want to also like thank Mary Roach for that quote because I did get most of this information from a, a chapter on ectoplasm in her book Spook, which if you haven't read it is really wonderful. So fantastic. Honestly, I haven't read it in like, I think I read it when it came out and I haven't read it since then. So um, all of this is washing over me afresh. Yeah. But it, it is, makes me really want to reread it. It had been a while <laughs> and I, I went back to my copy and read this chapter and it, yeah, I had, <laughs> I had forgotten about the most convenient storage warehouse, um, <laughs> which is really just phenomenal. Um, anyway, so Marjorie was not like the, the panel was very, was very divided. Um, and I don't, I think in the end they didn't award her the prize. They were not fully convinced um, and in fact, one of uh, one of the members of the committee was like in on it with her. Um, so, oh. I, she, I mean, she continued performing until her, de- until her death. Uh, so she wasn't like totally disgraced. And she's I, this is like actually the only thing not from her book from Mary Roach's book, but she did seem to have like all kinds of other trickery going on that she was just like constantly inventing new things to just like really convince people that she had some kind of magical power. So anytime people were like, mm, I think, me think right. something is afoot. She was like, well, what about this, though? <laughs> Can't explain that. Yeah. Just move right along. Just keep, just... See, that was you... the problem with Mary Toft, is she was a one-trick pony. She yeah. just kept producing rabbits, and then they figured out that she was having rabbits delivered to her room, but, you know, all she had to do was be like, it's not rabbits anymore. It's uh it's a sheep lung. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so um yeah, Marjorie was an an inventive an inventive woman. Um and finally there was um Helen Duncan who did use gauze, but I guess to greater effect than Eva C did originally. Um and I think maybe her success was due to like the incredible volume of it that she could <laughs> produce. <laughs> Like, I kind of now I'm kind of remembering a, a black and white photo in Spook of just like a really horrifying pile of gauze. Yeah, uh, it's but maybe like, I made that up in my head. I mean, there's like I'm I'm getting it mixed up whether it was in the book or like you can also find photos of of ectoplasm online um, and like the various women who seem to produce it. Uh, she would produce like six foot long stretches of ectoplasm and uh harry price who was a psychic researcher in london when that was a job that you could have was he spent like two months of his life investigating helen duncan and her supposedly ectoplasm producing abilities um and he i guess was on to the vagina trick so he designed a special garment that was kind of just a jumpsuit um so that pants it was work basi- around that. <laughs> it was basically that. It was like a, a full body situation. So you couldn't like hide something in your vagina. Right. And Anyone who's ever out. worn a jumpsuit and then had to use the bathroom. Yeah. Knows Impossible. That been, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess that was novel for women. Like not a lot sure, of jumpsuits yeah. for women in the, in the, I'm, I've lost track of exactly what year it was at this point, but in the early 1900s. Um, so, uh, but good old Helen, she, produced the ectoplasm despite the jumpsuit <laughs> and so uh so Wait, despite Price... the jumpsuit so yeah yeah oh wow. not of not wow. of a not of i mean maybe she did sometimes but she could do it despite not having access to her vagina so um harry price went sort of another hypothesis 
which is that she must have an extra stomach, like a cow, and that she was some kind of like ruminant where she could like store things in this extra stomach and then produce them later. Um, And he was like kind of right. Like, I don't know why he felt that she needed an extra stomach. Um, right one stomach can hold is a lot storage yeah yeah mm-hmm. they're very stretchy um so he did like he did he got her in the end because he did ask helen to undergo an x-ray he thought he was going to maybe see an extra stomach um, <laughs> but he just saw a stomach full of gauze <laughs> but well he d- he didn't in the end because he asked her to do it like I-, I guess after she performed the trick which is what it says in the book but I'm not really clear why it would be after. I would assume it would be well, before. Because he was really sold on the two stomach. Yeah, I guess he was like, mo- it won't matter that she's already emptied out. I'll be able to see that second yeah. stomach. So, um, and she agreed. And then, like right as they're about to do the X-ray, she literally ran out of the building, <laughs> followed by <laughs> by her husband. And then they came back ten minutes later, and she was like, "No, it's all good. I'm fine. Let's definitely do the X-ray now." And he. Harry Price was like, mm, I think that something is going on. She was like, no, 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 it's all it's all good. We're going to do the x-ray. Uh, uh, and when Price was like, turned to her husband and said, would you, could I, like, basically, like, get, do you consent to a search? Like, if I, if I searched you, would I find some ectoplasm on you? And her husband was like, mm, I, I'm not really comfortable with that. And they just, I think they just kind of left. I don't even know whether the x-ray they was ever done. A, a stalemate. Yeah. Um, but Price was, he, he did not give up. And he eventually, like, I guess gathered enough proof for, like, maybe just people who thought that Helen was full of shit. And uh, he gathered these people and had, like, an intervention with her husband and basically was like, look, the jig is up. We know it's we know she's faking it like maybe we don't know exactly how but like we know what's going on. It might and, be an extra stomach but whatever <laughs> it is. And they can they they convinced the husband they bribed him they gave him a hundred pounds. Um, they were in London at the time and they convinced him to convince Helen to do the trick on film um and the husband promised and then went home and then the next day he and helen ran away to scotland never to be heard of <laughs> yes. from again um so like the obvious answer here probably is that like helen duncan was a very talented regurgitator which is like a thing some people can do it's a very wild thing it's definitely not good for your esophagus because you do like you're vomiting something up and so some of your stomach acid comes up along with it and that is not a good thing um but it's a pretty good way to make objects appear from your body magically (laughs) um i don't know that anyone ever like like fully got her to admit that or like really confirmed it um and uh in the book mary roach says that it's also very possible that most of the time because her husband had to sit next to her in the seances for some kind of like magical reason um that probably he just like slipped her a bunch of gauze or something so that she could undergo the uh like required vaginal exam that often happened before seances to make sure you weren't smuggling anything naturally Um, but i she could probably vomit up a lot of gauze and it would probably be pretty slimy and more (laughs) ectoplasmy i don't uh, know just i don't i feel like 
for some reason, this particular industry, like, has anyone ever been more like girl boss, gaslight, gatekeep? That's, I think it's, (laughs) that's what I think of. It's kind of great. Like, it's just such a, it's for them. It's such a particular era of women being like, do you know what we can convince men that we're doing? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of love it. I kind of love Helen Duncan and Marjorie and Eva. They were wonderful. Eva also, like, I'm pretty sure was married to a man and also her assistant was married to a man. But I I could not totally track this down. But I think that she had like a 25 year, like, intimate relationship with her assistant, Juliet. And right. she had a best friend and she roommate. Had a, and- <laughs> yeah. And they were they were just, you know, they were just partners in crime and definitely not partners in anything else. But uh, that's the story that I want to hear is like yeah. Eva and her ectoplasm and her girlfriend. I That's like Absolutely. lovely. I'd love to watch that film. Wow. Well, that's great. I love that story. Much better than the human skin book. <laughs> <laughs> not better, but happier for sure. <laughs> quite so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week um i'm i mean like honestly just the fact that a dentist invented (sighs) cotton candy uh is is very weird um i love the story of the ectoplasm girl bosses um so i'm I'm torn between those two oh i'm going with ectoplasm um (laughs) oh well then Ectoplasm wins it with the tiebreaker. Ectoplasm always wins. (laughs) Absolutely true. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.